Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Podcast. Watch us live every Sunday morning at 9.30 or 11.05 a.m. at gosblive.com or visit us in person. You can find directions at gostonebridge.com. Connect with us on our social media at facebook.com slash and our Instagram at sbchurch. All right, so we're jumping into this series called Searching for a King. Just to let you know, I'm so grateful for also for what Joe said, that uh, how many people make this just a wonderful place to be. Even though I do take it as a challenge, Joe, that apparently I'm not tough enough, so um, uh, I'll, get, I'll try to be heavier with the staff and everything. <laughs> Somebody asked me this week, they said, I guess you have a lot of work to do coming out of Thanksgiving to get everything set. And I just looked at them with a kind of a blank stare and they said, what? I said, I won't do any of it. Are you kidding me? I said, if there weren't people that knew where things go, how to hook things up, how to run things, I said, it wouldn't happen. I said, I just do my part, my job, and uh, they do theirs and somehow it works together. And uh, hopefully God is uh, honored by it. One of the things that I like to talk about is Christmas. So I, I admit it, just like Mikey uh, said. Joni will always ask me, my wife, she will say, don't you get tired? Isn't it hard at Christmas because you go and you have to preach on the same thing? And actually it's not. So after 40 something years of getting to do Christmas series, um, it, it's still brand new, it's still fresh because there's so much that you haven't talked about as far as Christmas is concerned. My one problem it used to be when I first started out is I thought I had to talk about everything that had to do with Christmas in the Christmas series. And people got tired of like four hour sermons. And they were like, you know, you can't do everything, but there, there's so much uh, in there and so much that relates to us that we uh, struggle with, but at the same time is important to us. And that was how we wanted to start this one off, talking about this birth of a king in our lives. I don't know if you realize it, but um, Jesus Christ is actually not his name. I know that you're going to say, oh, one of those new conspiracies, his name was Floyd. Or, no, no, Jesus, Jesus was his name. Jesus was his name. But Christ is actually his title. What happened with the early church is they would talk about Jesus the Messiah, and they would talk about Jesus the anointed one, the one that God had sent that he had chosen for us. While we sing about uh, Christ the Lord, it's actually that Lord part is what Christ uh, means. So the, the word that, that we have as Christ comes from Greek, which is, uh, it comes from, so Christos comes from uh, Messiah, Hebrew. It's, it's the Messiah, the Christ, or the king, the ruler. That's actually what it means, and that's who the Messiah was. He would be a future ruler who would come. He would rescue his people. He would rule over not only his people, but he would rule over all the earth, and his kingdom would have no end. It would be an, a forever kingdom. So when Jesus comes, he is called originally uh, by the early believers. You'll see it in the, in the Bible. He's called Jesus the Christ. That means the king or the ruler who has come. It gets shortened, right, to just Jesus what? Yeah, Jesus Christ. And it sounds like it's his last name or something like that. And, uh, but, it, but actually, it's, it's, it's not. It's just um, how, it, how he was referred to, you know, as, as time went on. And, uh, and sometimes when you see in the translations, I'll even point one out if I remember uh, here, where if you go back to the, uh, the, the language in the original, it's much more clear, but, but we just sort of turn it into something else. It's okay. Um, it's just important to remember who Jesus was, that Jesus was a ruler. 
And Jesus was a king sent uh, to the earth by God himself. So here's, here's what I think about that, just to let you know. I think that's one of those things that, that sort of points out a need in our lives. We need a ruler, we do. We need someone who uh, will direct us, look after us. Most of us are looking for someone that we can follow, devote our lives to, and know in devoting our lives to that person, um, we are okay, that was a worthwhile thing to do. And yet, all of us sort of struggle with this idea, but wait a minute, I'm not gonna have somebody ruling over me, right? I don't want a king over me, right? Of course we do, we, we, we push back uh, at that. I think it was um, uh, Jim Webb who wrote a book, somebody gave me a book long, uh, years ago, as a good friend, he was a psychiatrist, and he gave me a book. Uh, it talks about the Irish roots in America. And uh, so I'm uh, redheaded normally until it faded away and I turned into Santa Claus, but it, it was there and freckle-faced. And so, you know, obviously I have these Irish roots uh, in me. And in his book, he talks about the Irish roots in America. And one of the characteristics of the Irish is we will have no one telling us what to do. And he said, you know, this is actually a really good thing as far as our stubbornness and who we are, but hang on. But he also will say, it's also a really bad thing because it makes it difficult for us to unite together and to do something together which we need to do in order to accomplish things. Otherwise, we just spend our lives fighting against one another and fighting for position all the time. I think it's a good word because it's, it's part of our struggle, right? If we look at the, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the emperors, somebody might do this for me. I was trying to look up and to find somewhere, surely someone has calculated how many kings, pharaohs, emperors, czars, kaisers, whatever there have been, you know, as far as we know, in human existence. My guess is it's more than hundreds, it's more than thousands, it's probably in the tens of thousands, so that'd be a good thing if you could figure that out. I would love to use that stat one day because we've had people uh, push toward, work toward, wanting to be the ruler, the king, the authority, the one in control, and yet at the same time we push against that, don't we? Sure we do. If you've got kids, the kids push against that? Oh my. So I have grandkids living at my house and a daily battle, I'm, I'm talking, no, I shouldn't say daily, I would say a, a minute by minute battle is, is grandkids pushing the boundaries. How far can I take this? How much can I, can I do that says, I don't have to listen to you no matter who you are. Uh, and every once in a while, one of my grandkids will do something like, you're not my dad. <laughs> and I say, yeah, but I'm older and I'm meaner than you are. So you, you know, you're gonna do what I say instead. So I have to find some kind of leverage, right? To, to get them to, uh, to listen to me. It's a struggle for all of us. It always has been a struggle for all of us. If you go back in the Old Testament, it was a struggle for Israel. It's why they are, they're often called the stiff-necked people. That just means they won't listen to anyone. They want to do what they want to do, and they're not gonna let anybody else tell them what to do. It's this struggle that we have, and this idea, especially in our country, where do we have a king? I can't believe y'all didn't jump up and start singing the Star Spangled Banner, right? Of course we don't. No, we do not have a king. We push back against the idea of a king. And so even the leader of our country, who is often called the leader of the free world, is a temporary position. 
uh, never a permanent position. And that is because the kings of the earth, most of them started out with this one idea, and that is that it is hereditary, right? You're born into this position. You were created, you were, you were born, you were made to rule and for this position. And it's a very useful thing for um, rulers or families or monarchs or, you know, to hand down their authority to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. Before we push back too much against it, listen, we do the same thing. <laughs> we want to hand down what we have, what we have achieved or what we have earned to who? Our children and our grandchildren, not someone else's children. So it, it's a part of who we are. And it actually comes from, or I think it probably comes from this idea of God himself and whether or not God has a ruler that is born of him. Jesus is often called the son of who? Yeah, that means he inherits this position. He comes from God. He is different than we are. We were not born of God the same way he was born of God. So the one and only son of God comes, and this is very much Hebrew theology, comes to rule not only over Israel, but to rule over the earth since God created the earth. And it is his possession and it's his ownership. If you go in the Psalms, you'll read many of the Psalms that are called, uh, or they, they have a messianic uh, tent to them. In other words, they were true in their day, but they also talk about the future, what is coming. And many times in the Psalms, they, they refer to the, the idea that God created it it belongs to him. One day he will fully claim it in the future, and that is not today, but in that time he is sending forth his Messiah, his rescuer, to rescue us into the kingdom of God. Don't miss that word. The kingdom of God, his rule where he is. Yeah, it's a struggle for us uh, because the reality is whether we like to admit it, we usually look for a human rescuer, a human king, uh, someone to rule. Um, I like to listen to uh, old messages from uh, Tim Keller, who's one of my favorite. And uh, about eight years ago, uh, Keller did a uh, message talking about the future king. And in one place, he references a writer, one that I don't know. You might know him. I can't remember his name, so I'm not going to give you his name. Uh, but he died about eight years ago. And um, he was a writer for the New York Times. Um, he actually died of AIDS. And in his last column, they published his last column. This is what he says in the column. He says, um, talks about his own kind of foolishness, looking for a human leader who would fix everything. And he says, I'm not trying to be political, but he says this, he says, I just knew if we could get a Democrat in office, he would fix this. He's talking about his AIDS. He would cure it. He would have it, have it fixed. And he talks about in the article how foolish that was for him to think that way. His last article. Yeah, because it's the foolishness of human beings. That we think somehow someone, someplace is going to fix it all. Now, I know the other side of that is you're going to say, but wait a minute. So are you saying that we should just all be cynics? Yeah, like, okay. no, because there is a ruler. And it's hard for us to understand that there is a Christ, there is a ruler, there is a king who is 100% just and he's 100% merciful and compassionate. And, and we have a hard time with that because we don't know human beings like that. 
even the best that we see, even the best that we know, do not fit this picture, even though the promise is out there that one day God would send someone like that. If you know the history of Israel, um, Israel was a, uh, a group of people that came out of Egypt, right? Um, Joseph led them into Egypt. Moses leads them out of Egypt, or actually it was uh, Charlton Heston, but we call him Moses. He led them out of Egypt, and uh, they become a nation, and uh, for the first time, they wanted a king. It's funny, because if you go back into Exodus and you go back into also into uh, Leviticus, you will see that there was provision for a king, probably because God knew uh, they would want a king. But in those provisions, it always talked about, but you have a king. And so even if you have an earthly king who will be flawed, uh, you still have a king because they always viewed God as the king who would reign over them, which is why they did not need a human king to reign over them. But they didn't have the king. And if you know their history, they have three kings as a united kingdom. Do you remember who they are? The first one is named Saul. The next one is named David, and he's the most beloved and the most honored. And um, all the promises about Messiah come through David. He will be descendant of David. He will be like David, even with David's flaws. And David had major flaws in his life, just like us. But also there was something about the heart of David. And then David's son, Saul's son, never became uh, king, but David's son becomes king. His name was what? Solomon. Then after Solomon's uh, death, the, the country divides again. You probably don't know this, but there's a northern part of Israel and a southern part. Saul was from the northern part. Uh, David and Solomon were from the southern part, and there was a battle with them always. Yes, they had civil wars also for who would rule, and that struggle went on. And they both had kings, sets of kings. There was a difference, though. The northern kingdom and all of their kings, they weren't all just hereditary or handed down. They would have wars, battles, uh, political unrest, same type things that we go through. And then new dynasties would be created in the northern kingdom. A new family would take over and then hand it down. The southern kingdom, all the descendants or all the kings that reigned were all descendants of David. It was a picture that one day God would be faithful to send a king from the descendants of David who would rule over the people. And I thought in order to understand this, I took this from a book that um, I was given about 40 years ago. It's a really good encyclopedia. It's, it's sort of, a, of terms and it's in here and there's a general editor to this book. It's like 1200 pages. So you don't wanna read this book, but it's a good reference book. And uh, one of the authors that the editor put in here, this is what he says about that. He says in Israel, the office of king, it was, a, it was an office, emerged for the first time during the 11th century BC when Saul became the first full monarch. Prior to that time, the people had been led by prophetic type figures, Moses, Samuel, we'll talk about prophets, and judges. There had been re uh, a resistance to introducing the office of king in Hebrew society. Think about this, you, you'll probably relate to this. The resistance was probably in part a consequence of the awareness of how kingship had been abused in other states and the fear of, of similar abuse in Israel. Yes, we have fl 
flawed rulers. We have flawed people who somehow attain to the throne and may claim divinity or whatever, but they're flawed. And they act out those flaws and it, and it causes all of us to struggle. And yet at the same time, they also accomplish things. That's what he's talking about. He says, but in addition, the true king of Israel was believed to be who? God, yes. A theological, um, he says, awareness which had dawned in the exodus from Egypt. And he gives a reference there. Hence, in Hebrew law, kingship was anticipated and permitted under certain controls. And there's the uh, Deuteronomy uh, reference over on those controls. But it was not perceived as the ideal form of government. Because for them, the ideal form of government was having God himself rule over us because God was faithful, because God was just, because God was trustworthy. God was the one that you could depend on and God would never let us down. He might do things that we don't like. He might not do what we want him to do, but he would always do the right thing, the good thing, the righteous thing. He talks about those offices. So uh, for the most part, there were three offices in Israel. First office that appeared was the office of prophet. And a prophet was there because of our ignorance, because we did not know. And there were things that we could not know unless God speaks to us and tells us what we need to know about him, uh, about ourselves, about what we struggle with, about where the future is. And the prophet's job was to come and lift the ignorance from the people and to let them know who God was, what God had said, and it would change. The second office was priest. And the priest would come, and his job that is later established is to come and deal with the guilt of the people. You struggle with guilt? Anybody? God knows. You can, okay, so yeah. The, uh, we, we all do, don't we? Yeah, guilt is a, is a difficult thing for us to get over. And we live in a time where humanly what we say is just ignore the guilt or act as if the guilt is not really there or somehow excuse the guilt. Yeah, but my guilt is not really my fault. It's somebody else's fault. But how do you deal really with the guilt in your life? That was the job of the priest. The priest had come to show that there were ways that God would rescue us from our guilt and they offered sacrifices in order to to express to God and to show to God that they were serious about looking to him to lift their guilt from their lives. But then king was the third office. King is a little different because the king came to defend us. We would have enemies from the outside. We would have those who would, who would take us away from our relationship to God, from the king, who would rob us of the kingdom. And the king would come to defend, he would come to protect, and the king would come to to deal out justice in life and in the world. And this, this part of, of who Jesus is, is such an important role for us to understand. Because when Jesus comes, he does not come the way a king or a ruler would come in our minds, how we see it. This is not how we understand kings or rulers. Um, just because of the way he's born, um, who he comes from humanly here on the earth, but there are signs and there, there are things that point to the fact that Jesus, as this baby child, is the king born to be not only the king of Israel, but he's actually born to be the king of a kingdom. And this kingdom was different from all the other kingdoms. This kingdom would have no geogra geographical boundaries. 
There's nothing physically that would stop this kingdom from spreading and growing all across the earth. And that is true even today, where the gospel, the message of the kingdom goes, and people believe, and they become a part of the kingdom, even though they live in different lands, even different racial backgrounds, even different religious backgrounds do not stop the kingdom from growing. Now, one of the things that was a struggle, and it was a struggle in Jesus' day, was actually religion. Hang on, because you say, well, isn't Christianity a religion? But the problem with religion was this. Religion, so many times from a human standpoint, is me trying to figure out what the rules are and to deal with my guilt myself by what I do and somehow saying, I'm good enough, I deserve this, I have earned this. That does not look to the king. That looks to us to do that. And we like it, and religions are always popping up with this as the core of what they believe and what they do, because it does not look to God as king and Jesus as king, Jesus as the Christ, but instead is Jesus as maybe a prophet, maybe Jesus as priest in some way, but not Jesus as ruler over our lives who brings both mercy and justice uh, to us. So I want to take you to, this is in a Matthew's version of the gospel, and I like to say this, so um, if you've heard me say this before, sorry, it's one of my favorite things to say. If you go into the Bible, uh, especially the story of who Jesus is, there are four versions. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they give us four different perspectives on the birth. Why? Because it was that important. And as some people say, well, wait a minute, there are contradictions, of course, because there are things that one person will see and emphasize that the other person will not see and emphasize. And even in the Gospels, there's difference in the perspective. Matthew is a follower of Jesus. He's one of those guys that ends up being a disciple of Jesus. But Matthew's background, does anybody know Matthew's background? He was what? He was a tax collector. So for the Hebrews, he was a traitor. Here's a guy who has allied himself, even though he's Hebrew, he has allied himself with the Romans. There's nothing worse that you could possibly do than to ally yourself with the people who occupy Israel, who are the invaders of their land. But Matthew is changed by a relationship with Jesus. His life totally changes. And so Matthew's version is very important. And some of the details that Matthew uh, puts out are, are really important. So this is in Matthew chapter number one. What Matthew does, because he's Hebrew, first thing he does is he goes through a set of genealogies. Because in order for Jesus to be the legitimate Christ, the legitimate Messiah, the one with the right to say he is the future king, he must fall in the line of David. And so if you go and read in the very first part, he talks about from Abraham, beginning of the nation, to David, here are the genealogies. From David uh, all the way down to the exile in Babylon, that was about 585, something like that when the temple is destroyed, the Babylonians conquer, there are these genealogies. And then from uh, the Babylonian exile to the time of Jesus, this gene, these genealogies. And all of them trace through the line of David. They could have gone and they could have challenged this. But in the temple, they kept all of the records of all of the births. And so he gets these uh, from there. This is not all of them in there, but these are the ones that are key, going all the way from uh, Abraham to David through the Babylonian exile all the way down to Joseph and the birth of Jesus himself. Key for them, because this was the promise. This was the proof 
of who he was that he would come through uh, David's line. Even though Joseph is of no stature and of no real, um, uh, any kind of a claim at all, his, his father. So he's just done that. And then this is what it says in verse 17 of that same chapter. He said, all these listed above uh, include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. This is how Jesus the Messiah, or in some of your translations it will say Jesus Christ, or some will say Jesus the Christ. This means the, the anointed one, the one who is chosen to be king, promised to be king, existed before, and has now come to rule over us, uh, was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of, not a man, through the power of who? The Holy Spirit. And he says, Joseph, her fiance, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. Jewish engagement was a very serious thing. Uh, the families usually arranged for the marriages, and at some point when they made the arrangement, they would be called husband and wife, even though they would go through a one-year trial period where they still lived at home for the most part um, to, before the wedding actually took place or before it was consummated. And during that time, it was proof that she was pure and I don't know about Joseph. There was no proof for him. But somehow this was a, a, a test of this because this was important to their culture and then at the end of that year. So she is found to be pregnant. So what Joseph does is he decides he loves Mary. He has great respect for Mary and he is a good, honest man. He decides to put her away quietly because somehow something has gone wrong. However, look at what, what happens because this seems like this would be the end of the story and, um, and a tragedy uh, for them in their, with their families. This is what it says in verse 20. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, now listen, he doesn't just say Joseph. He says, Joseph what? Joseph, son of David, yes. Joseph, son of David. The angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son. And you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is his name. It comes from the uh, Hebrew, um, eventually, Yahshua, Joshua. And it means God is the one who saves us. And this was not a family name for him. It's a strange name for all of his relatives, we learn. But he names him God is the one who saves because of who Jesus actually is. But the emphasis here with the angel, too, is the fact that Joseph is of the line of David. This is key as far as the understanding that who Jesus was going to be and what Jesus was going to do as far as ruling over us as a people. Then it says, uh, this is actually a quote from uh, Isaiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah. It says, all this occurred while the, uh, to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, he says this in Isaiah chapter 7, I think it is. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son. And they will call him, what? Emmanuel, which means, that doesn't mean that will be his name. It's, it's almost like a title also, which means God with us. Jesus is the God with us. Jesus, one of his favorite 
titles that he gives of himself when he's asked is he would call himself the son of man. And a lot of times people make the mistake of thinking, okay, that's Jesus referring to the fact that he is a man and this humility to say, I came as a man, and he's referring to that. It's actually not what he's saying. Uh, Son of man comes from the prophecy from Daniel that designates that he is divine, that he is from God himself. And when he used this term, son of man, Jesus is referring to his divinity, even though you see him as a human being, he is divine. And Jesus often talked about this to his disciples. He said, be careful that you don't stumble over me. Why? Because you see him as a man. And it's hard to understand if he's a man, why isn't he like other men? How could I trust him? I don't, I, I, you know, if you've gone through enough of life, you say, I don't know of any other man or woman that I can fully trust. Why would I fully trust him to do the right thing? Because he's not like other men. He is divine. He is from God. His birth indicates that. His life will indicate that. Even when Jesus walks around and does miracles and he does incredible miracles, the point was not the miracles. The point was who Jesus was. They pointed to the fact that Jesus was a king. He came to set up a new kingdom. And you and I get a chance to be a part of that new kingdom. We get a chance to receive and and accept the message of the kingdom which puts us into then this new kingdom because of who Jesus himself is and because of what he's done. It was another pointer to who Jesus was. That's why he could do miraculous things that uh, other human beings could not do. Then, Then Matthew goes on to say, verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and he took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relationships with her until her son was born. And Joseph named him um, Jesus. Then Matthew jumps to one of my favorite parts of the story. Is the very next chapter. He jumps to the coming of the wise men. Do you like the story of the wise men? I do. Because these are guys who come seeking him. They're looking for him. They are, they are the royal astrologers from the east. Maybe Persia. Maybe, maybe they came from multiple places. Uh, We think of three wise men, but we're never given a number for them. We're never told where they came from. We get the idea of three because they brought three gifts which have to do with with who Jesus uh, was. But these men come, and again, it's another sign for Joseph and for Mary and for those who saw of who Jesus was. Because magi are these royal astrologers. Their number one job was to make Kings, that's what they did. It, it's sort of like uh, politically in our country, if you want to be king, you want to be uh, a president, you want to hold an office, you got to have backers, right? You've got to have the right people, influencers. You have to have people who can help you build a name and a reputation in order to win an office. This is who the Magi were. If you wanted to take over a throne in Persia, and you weren't in line, you needed the support of the wise men, the astrologers. Because they would go and they say, look, as we look in the heavens, there's a new sign. And this new sign says there is a new king. And they would mean by that a new line of kings that has come. And that would help support your claim to take over, even though you might have the military or the wealth to take over. You needed them to give you some legitimacy to who you are. So here's what it says. This is Matthew's uh, um, 
letting us know about this event. This is what he says in verse 1 of chapter 2. Jesus was born in, tell, tell me where he was born. You know? Yeah, he was born in Bethlehem. So even though Joseph is from the north, he's from the upper part of the northern kingdom, down in Bethlehem below Jerusalem is where um, he will be born. He was born during the reign of King Herod. King Herod is the guy that rules this region. He's not the Caesar overall, but he's the guy that rules this region. About the time wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, listen to this, where is the newborn what? King of the Jews. They didn't say where's the, where's the savior? Where's the rescuer? Where's the great friend of mankind? They wanted to know where this new ruler was, this, this one who had been designated as king in this area. Now, is it because of uh, the influence of Daniel in the East? Maybe other uh, uh, Jewish scholars or, or people who had moved there? We don't really know. But somehow, as they looked to the stars and as they tried to figure out things uh, by their system, a new star had appeared. And for them, somehow they understood it as designating that a king had been born to the Jews and they came looking for exactly that king. It says, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose. This, this, is, this is literally, we saw his star in the east. So th there's the appearance somehow to them or the recognition of some new star that they, they believe symbolized this. And we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Okay, so here's the question. Why would Herod be disturbed? Simple, right? New king born, new takeover, a new dynasty, a new throne. Why is he disturbed? Because it's his dynasty right now. His family rules. And Herod was a brutal ruler. He squashed and destroyed anything that threatened his reign because Herod knew how it worked. He was a master politician. He was a master builder. In fact, Herod may be one of the greatest builders ever to exist. He was a warrior. He understood how to move and make politics and war happen. He understood the social media of the day and the, and the connections in his day you had to have in order to hold power. And so Herod, when he hears this, and these are people from foreign lands showing up, so their influence would be significant as they came asking and looking in Jerusalem for the king of the Jews. Why would they come to Jerusalem? Because it's the center place for the Jews. And obviously, if there was a new king to be born, it would be, in their mind, it would be in Jerusalem, and the, the rulers there in Jerusalem would know uh, of this new king. So he goes on to say... Um, uh, he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law. And he asked them, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? So Herod is learning already of the birth. Now he wants to know the location of the birth. And here's what they uh, tell him. In Bethlehem of Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, you are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will, who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. So now he knows the location, the place. He knows the time because of what the Magi have told him, these astrologers, 
when the star appeared, and now he knows the locations. And it says, then Herod called a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem, search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him also too. Did Herod, want, did Herod want to worship the Christ? Was that his, his great yearning or his great goal that the king of Israel has been born? This, this king that was prophesied, he's been, he's been born. And my goal is to go down and to worship him as the king, as the Christ, as the ruler, the anointed one. Is that really Herod's motive? No, of course it's not. <laughs> he's human. His motive is going to be, I need to eliminate this king, right? Because if I eliminate this king, then the, the kingdom will be who? It'll be mine. Yeah, I will have it. I say that because, listen, we're not that much different than Herod. Deep down inside, there's a part of Herod in all of us that says, but wait a minute, can't this be mine? And the answer that we're going to see from the story and, and that we should be able to look back for 2,000 years and say is the answer is no. You cannot stop what God is going to do. And, and since Jesus is the ruler who comes from heaven, you will not outsmart him. You won't outthink him. You won't outmaneuver him, no matter how smart you are, uh, how, how good you are at manipulating the, the politics of the day, how many soldiers you have at your disposal. And, and Herod uses all of these to try to uh, achieve his goal and his purpose for his life. But the bottom line of it is, Herod is rejecting, I mean, in the most forceful way, the king of heaven. Right? That's the story of the gospel. What will you do with the king of heaven? The one whom God has chosen. The one who God anoints. The one who God places in, incredibly, the line of David. How in the world could that possibly happen? And yet he's not just human, he's divine. And the one who comes in, out of nowhere, out of poor parents and the lowliest of beginnings in Bethlehem rises up to do things that no one has ever done before, say things that no one has ever heard before and understood before, to bring a, a sense of forgiveness and a release from our guilt that no one has ever been able to bring before. The sacrifices of Israel in the temple couldn't do it, but they could point to that he would be the one who would give his life for us because he is the one that is uh, worthy to be the king. And so you would think, you know, Herod's smart. He's got it figured out. He's going to win this battle. But it says, uh, after the interview, the wise men went their way. And the star that they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When, the, when they saw the star, they were filled with what? See, I, I think this joy is not just looking at the star. I think this joy is the fact that, that they, they recognize what they were looking for is different than everything they'd ever searched for before. And all of a sudden, it's confirmed once again to them. They entered the house and they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down 
and they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and they gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return where? Don't go back to Jerusalem. <laughs> Herod's ruthless. <laughs> so it will not turn out well for you and you will just fall. You will play right into the hands of a wicked human ruler who is very capable and, uh, and very persistent and will not stop to try to get his own way. But once again, even with the wise men, God intervenes. And I always loved the story because even as a, uh, as a young um, Christian um, in my high school years, I still remember when the, when the preacher said, and when they come and they worship him and they recognize and they see the king, and not, they, they don't see the king and, and recognize him as a king because there's glitter and gold and there are great palaces and, you know, and there's tens of thousands of soldiers, you know, marching around and trying to turn this, this human baby into something. They see the king because they recognize something beyond human beings and something that is born in a place that all of us could understand how much God cares for us and how he relates to us. And yes, with Mary, because there's another genealogy, one of the other writers is going to tell us about Mary's genealogy, which also goes through the line of David. He is born at the right place at the right time as God had decided it was time to reveal the ruler of the universe, the one who would rule forever and who has prophesied his kingdom never going to end. Yeah. The Christ has been born, the king to rule over us. Let's pray together. And what a great time is. You and I start the holiday season and there's so many things that could uh, distract us and, and uh, lead us in other directions and cause us to, in, in doing that, miss um, what Christmas is really all about. This great celebration that has occurred because we recognize now, looking back, we recognize that the King of Heaven was born 2,000 years ago into our world where the need was so great. Our, our need for understanding, our need for wisdom, someone to come and take away our ignorance of who God is and how much He loves us and that He has a plan and that one day He'll work that plan out fully where our guilt is removed because the king comes and gives his life. He sacrifices himself for us rather than as most leaders and rulers eventually do, they ask the people to sacrifice themselves for him and for her. And then he leads us, he protects us so that we're not tricked, we're not led astray. He defends us. And he's a God who sees us, sees our hearts, who we are, brings about justice, and yet he pours out incredible love and compassion upon all of those who recognize and accept the message of the kingdom. If you're here and maybe for the first time, it's kind of clicked 
Maybe God has, has, has touched your heart and spoken to you through his own word that he is the God of the universe and that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the anointed one, the king who would rule over us. And that in that kingdom, you have a place because of his great mercy. What a great time to say, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are my king, my king who's also my my rescuer and my savior. With incredible love and compassion for me and for everyone that, that I meet who's an opportunity for me to share the message of the kingdom. Forgive me my sins. Walk with me, teach me to the day that I get to join you forever. In Jesus' name I pray.